Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com You are listening to Superman Forever Radio, Episode 9. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Superman Forever Radio, your weekly look at the Man of Steel. And I am your festive host, J. David Weeder, adorned in a Superman Snuggie. And it looks like most of the my fellow Superman podcasters actually got this for Christmas. Um, looks like we really just need to get Michael Bailey from Crisis to Crisis, one of these. He's the only one that seems to be lacking. But I, I do hope that everybody had a wonderful holiday, and I hope everybody's going to have a great New Year's, a very safe New Year's. And, uh, yeah, it was a great day. I got a, uh, well, I, you know, what I asked for. I wanted some money to help fund my trip to Metropolis, Illinois, and the Superman celebration this June. And I got to tell you, I mean, it's six months away, but I'm already excited about that. I'm going to be booking my room for all four days um, at the end of this week. So I am uh, just, I mean, six months away, but I am psyched because I had a blast last year, even with my kind of, uh, whirlwind tour of metropolis we only had one day to really spend there it was great and i've been there in the off season fantastic so i'm really looking forward to it six months uh can't go by fast enough but uh here we are at the end of 2010 and uh, it will be a year ago on january 2nd that i started the tumblr version of superman forever and here now we've evolved into podcast form but i'll go into that a little bit on the at the end of the show and I did tweak a few things to make the show run smoother. I'm putting the topic at the front of the show, followed by the news, the top five, Metropolis Idol right in the middle, sandwiched in there, as well as your emails, and then the reviews and the coverage on the New Earth titles, our New Earth era Superman titles to kind of wrap it up. So it's not a major format change, but it should kind of keep the show uh, running smoothly because I was listening to it last week and some of the transitions were a bit awkward, so... and. Uh, one uh, quick side note, I've real only been doing this show since October, so I can't do a, a full end, year-ender, really. I don't feel quite comfortable with that, because I you know, haven't been there for most of it, at least not in podcast form. Um, next year at this time, we'll certainly do a major year-end roundup. But I do want to throw out uh, my pick for 2010's Superman Moment of the Year. And honestly, it was in Superman Batman number 78. Uh, it's a scene which Batman kind of freaks Superman out a bit. When stating that the kid concocting Batman's side of the the fight between the world's finest had the details right. And it was straight Clark and Bruce laughs. It was pure joy. But uh, we will eventually get to that issue a little bit more fully way down the line. But for now, let's start this thing up by finishing the story of Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. And when we left, you know, last week, uh, they had created Superman 
Um, we had looked at some of the influences that would have helped form Superman. But having the idea and deciding what to do with the idea is a little bit different. Um, really, the boys, they wanted to really go more directly into the comic strip format rather than the comic book format. And keep in mind, at this time, the idea of comic books, most of them were reprints of the comic strips themselves. It was a relatively new medium altogether. So they you really just wanted to go to the comic strip form. It looked, seemed a little bit more lucrative, a little bit more up their alley. And they really just submitted a lot and uh, got a lot of rejections. Um, they, you know, the, the uh, Superman, the complete history, uh, kind of mentions, you know, they submitted to famous funnies and the package returned unopened, but they did get a little bit of a success without Superman, um, in new fun comics, number six, which was put out by Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson's national publications, which would later go on to become DC comics. Um, new fun number six, they introduced Henry Duvall of France, a swashbuckler. Um, this would have been in 1935. So it wasn't Superman, but they were definitely getting work. And in this exact same issue, they also sold Dr. Occult Ghost Detective to New Fun. But as far as Superman, they didn't really pitch it because it looked a little shaky. The company was financially questionable. So, but, the, you know, they did, uh, you know, go in and pitch Superman to Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson uh, at a different company. And, um, uh, or at the, pardon me, at a later date. And so he really just suggested, try the color, cor you know, comic book format. And, you know, it's up to you. But they ended up turning him down to put Superman in that version. It really wasn't for them at that point. And, you know, and a little bit more success came with New Comics number 2, where they introduced Federal Men in January 1936, which was based around the still newly formed FBI. And oddly enough, you know, they did start doing some more futuristic type stories with that particular uh, character and introduced a character named Jor-El with only only the L, which uh, obviously would later become the name of Superman's father. And also around uh, Dr. Occult was going forward and in a new fun on 14 through 16, he did actually gain super strength, started wearing a blue costume with a red cape. So they were kind of giving Superman a tryout in that version just to see what would happen. And this was when they were writing under the pseudonyms of Ledger and Ruths. So apparently, you know, that kind of went over eh, pretty lackluster. But with Detective Comics number one, Harry Donafield and Jack Leibowitz kind of came into national and kind of started freshening things up because at this point, you know, the financial shakiness, Malcolm Willie Nicholson needed help. And, you know, these were the guys to do it. And, from what I understand, Harry Donafield himself was quite the character. I'm telling you, this would have been a great movie. I can see it playing out in my head. It's phenomenal. But with Detective Comics number one, uh, Slam Bradley was introduced, which was closer uh, to the second version of Superman that got burned up in the fire. And uh, at this point, you know, they kind of realized Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson was pretty much out, and National Periodicals was then going under Detective Comics, Inc., so some new things were coming about, and one of those was a new uh, original book called Action Comics, where it'd be all original strips. And they did manage to finally sell Superman, but they were asked to cut up the strips they had written uh, into 13-page comic book story. And so, of course, that eventually became Action Comics number one, as we know it. And then there was the Superman boom. But of course, the story can't be that simple. 
because you know Superman ended up he was at Metro at the Metropolis World's Fair way to go he was at the New York World's Fair they had a full Superman day with a guy in a costume he was on the radio I mean he had spinoffs he was the first comic book character to actually carry his own title and really I mean DC was seeing a lot of success single-handedly from Superman and of course of course spawned many superheroes and you had Superboy, which, you know, ended up, Jerry Siegel ended up presenting it because he saw all these other heroes as competition for his creation, Superman. So in 1947, the boys decided to sue to regain the rights and also get $5 million. Uh, basically what they saw as their cut of the Superman profits. But the case, you know, went up till May 1948 and they didn't get any rights back. They got $100,000 to uh, do a quit you know, quit claim to drop the whole thing. And they had their byline removed. So essentially it was like Siegel and Schuster got erased from the history of Superman for quite some time. And it's in, really, they got run out of comics at one point. Uh, Joe Schuster was working as a delivery man. And these were guys that they really, Joe Schuster was submitting things on wrapping paper because he could not afford drawing paper. And they saw some success. They did have some financial success with the Superman, but they just wanted to get their cut of the pie, and they got run out of comics. And they sued again and uh, tried to sue again in 1967, and once again were turned down. But it wasn't until 1975 that they started a public relations campaign. And I know Neil Adams was a big part of that, and Jim Hambrick, who runs the Superman Museum, who was you know managing them at the time, also was a big part of that. And they really just put it out there how DC was treating them and how they had treated them. And each of them got $20,000 a year in health benefits for the rest of their life. And their name was, their byline was restored. And really, it's really sad. Uh, Schuster died in 1992. He was almost blind and really couldn't do comics anymore. And Siegel died uh, in 1996. And it's, this is kind of the tragedy of the story is that these boys really pushed and they waited for Superman and he did eventually make it into strip form. But, you know, these guys that gave us the world's greatest hero that followed their dream, which could be an admirable, you know, story, inspirational story, really got, uh, you know, shafted. And, you know, they created this character in poverty and they ended up in poverty. And I remember hearing a story about somebody going to see Joe Schuster and he was living with either his mother who was elderly or he's living with his nephew. And I forget the details and I do apologize, but they mentioned he was nearly blind, sleeping on a cot in a back room next to a drafty window. And that image has stuck with me. And I, 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 I would have been preteen by the time when the first time I heard this story and it still sticks with me to this day at 33 that, you know, Bob Kane was able to swing a deal when he created Batman because he had a little bit of money behind him. He had lawyers over oversee it. So what that meant was, you know, he got his name on everything, even though Bob Kane, if if anybody knows the history of that, really didn't do all the heavy lifting on Batman. He came up with a core concept. Bill Finger really kind of developed it and molded it into the Batman we ended up seeing. And then really got the same. In fact, there's a say, there's a phrase in comics when you get, you know, really just screwed over. They call it getting fingered based on Bill Finger. And that's what happened to Siegel and Schuster. They created this great character, made the company a lot of money, and then were run out. 
and DC did somewhat the right thing by giving them a pension, but was it too little too late? I'm not here to pass moral judgment. I'm just here to tell you the story. So it's a, you know, a great story about following your dreams. Just remember to be very careful with those dreams if they are achieved, because it's very fragile. So that is the end of the tale of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And now let's uh, check out what's going on currently in the books. Let's do some news. We're sitting on top of the story of the century here. Javier Bardem, Oscar winner for Old No Country for Old Men. Could he be Superman? Well, probably not, but he was at one point in a skit form on a, a local show or a show produced in his native Spain. He did don the costume and, you know, he's, it came out on Jay Leno this past week. And if you want to see the video, it is on the show notes at supermanforever.com. I just wanted to give that a mention. Could he play it in, in real life? Eh, I don't know how well he can suppress his accent. Uh, meanwhile, Jeff Johns is the new Superman reboot based on Secret Origin. Here's why people are asking that. In the latest uh, edition of Secret Origin, the deluxe edition that came out, Jeff Johns wrote, or pardon me, David Goyer, who wrote the script for the new Superman movie, wrote an introduction, and people are actually taking, well, I'll just read the actual quotation to you and then explain it from there. This is what he wrote that, you know, sent up a red flag. And I'm quoting, As I write this, I am midway through my first draft of the new Superman screenplay, a task that has stymied many talented filmmakers in the years since Donner's film. And for all I know, it will end up stymieing me as well. But I've got one advantage that the screenwriters who came before me didn't have, and that's access to all the wonderful Superman stories written by Jeff Johns. And first and foremost being Secret Origin, Issues reprinted in the very volume you're holding now. He continues, There is a heartbreaking moment halfway through the first chapter in which young Clark is told the truth about his heritage. He races out into the night, sobbing, stumbling through the cornfields. Eventually his foster father, Jonathan, finds him. I don't want to be someone else, says Clark. I don't want to be different. I want to be Clark Kent. I want to be your son. Right there in that moment, Jeff Johns contextualized Superman in a way I'm not sure has ever really been done before. I had an aha experience when I read that for the first time. I was able to grasp how lonely Clark must have been when he was growing up and what a sacrifice Clark must continually make by being Superman. That is the actual quote. And here's what people are saying. They assume, based on that, that you know the screenplay must be based on Secret Origin, which I don't see working well as a movie. It's a little too over the top. Because you have to consider that while a Superman movie would have to please us hardcore Superman fans, you've also got the mainstream to deal with, unfortunately. Here's my take on that that particular quote. That's that aspect. It's a character aspect that he got. Doesn't mean he's taking story beats from Secret Origin. Doesn't mean he's taking designs from Secret Origin. Doesn't mean he does. he isn't. But primarily, I think he's taking a point of view, a character aspect of Clark. So before we get that completely out of whack, let's make sure we're absolutely clear that I believe that's just a storyline or a story, you know, character beat, not necessarily a full storyline, but I could be wrong. I just don't think I am on this one. And uh, one final piece of news before I read a quick email, um, DC Universe Online finally got a release date and on one eleven of 2011. You can actually play in Metropolis with the big leagues. And I've heard some problems with the beta. I don't know what the quality is going to be. 
And I've actually been kind of back and forth on whether or not I'm going to check it out. But if you do check it out, uh, particularly in the Metropolis mode, let me know your thoughts. Just drop me a line at mail at supermanforever.com. Speaking of dropping a line, I did get an email from uh, Steve Rogers, who I'm going to affectionately call Cap for obvious reasons. And he writes, just thought I'd drop you a line. No, not of hillbilly heroin. Quite frankly, I don't, even, I don't even want to know the difference between it and regular heroin. But another email saying, I love what you're doing with the show. I love the features you've been having, especially the death, funeral, rain story arc last month and on Superman's creators this month. By the way, thought you'd have an interesting point oh two on this, and it is actually point zero two, which I didn't get the first time I read it until I read it out loud, uh, since you are covering the post-Infinite Crisis Superman. was listening to Michael Bailey's JMS Earth 1 episode of Views from the Long Box, and he and his guest had an interesting conversation about attaching a name to this version of Superman, specifically Jeff Johns. What say you? On the pro side, he was there at the start of the run and crafted some of the seminal moments of the last five years of Superman stories. But on the other hand, was Kurt Busiek just as important coming out of the gate? And the fact that it took, what, four years for John's Man of Steel, so to speak, to finally see the printed page. And at the end of the day, it was more of a mashup of different mediums and such that what John Byrd, along with Marv Wolfman, once the monthly titles restarted, did back in 1986-87. And certainly not as strong as John's retcons of the Hal Jordan and Barry Allen characters. So there is that aspect where one might not want to put his name squarely on this era of Superman. I'd lean towards the latter point of view for what it's worth. While True Byrne would be off the books about the same time as John's left Superman proper titles, and much of the From Crisis to Crisis, in parentheses he notes, Hey Mike and Jeff, I get paid for this plug on David's show, right? Hey, I, I, if he's getting paid, I'm getting paid, Mike and Jeff. But the From Crisis to Crisis era is made up of different eras. Stern, Berganza, etc. But at the core of the characters remain from what Byrne and Wolfman started. Not entirely sure you can say the same for the Johns and Busick run at the start of the post-Infinite Crisis era. Especially with the twists and turns that have happened with New Krypton and Grounded. Well, anyway, just wondering what your thoughts were. Hope you had a wonderful holiday, and can't wait to keep hearing more great Superman Forever podcasts in the new year. Signed, Steve. And I appreciate that, Steve. I do appreciate the positive encouragement. And I had to think this over, because that's a tricky one. You have two very valid points on that. But my thought process is kind of along the lines of the latter as well, because when Byrne came in with Man of Steel... He wiped the slate clean. Everything was brand new tabla rasa. When Johns came in, he really did cherry pick. And he kept it vague. As you pointed out, it took years for us to actually see Secret Origin. To kind of get the foundation of where we were and what the new universe was. And I'll talk a little bit more about that aspect, you know, on down the into the episode towards the reviews. But I would say, you know, with this era, it really is this big mishmash. So I'm going to wait until later down the line to assign a specific name because there could be, could be a good seminal story that defines the era. And I don't know that we've gotten that yet. But at this point, Jeff Johns would definitely be the lead contender because his stuff actually stood out more than the Kurt Busey at Camelot Falls. Not necessarily in the good way because of uh, you know Last Sun's um, shipping schedule, but definitely in terms of influence. So I do appreciate you writing that. That's where I lean at the moment. And uh, 
One last thing, uh, books on shelves this week. Keep in mind, I believe that the books will be shipping on Thursday. Everything seems to be on track for Wednesday with the holiday being on the weekend. I just don't trust it, so I'm going to say Thursday, 1230, uh, 2010, or Wednesday, 1229, 2010. The only Superman book on shel- on the shelf this week will be Action Comics 896, written by Paul Cornell, with the Jimmy Olsen co-feature, written by Nick Spencer. Art is by Pete Woods, with uh, feature art by R.B. Silva, and a David Finch cover. That'll be 40 pages and hit and will take $3.99 US out of your pocket. And of course, uh, Metropolis Idol continues uh, with round one, week four. Um, with the results of last week's, Tim Daly beat out George Newburn with 67% of the vote. So he will move on to the next round and face off the winner of this week's bout, which is directed DVD Superman's. And this week's contestants are Adam Baldwin of Superman Doomsday, who ironically had the role of Superman at one point in Superman the Animated Series, but had to back out. So that's when Tim Daly came in, versus Kyle MacLachlan in Justice League New Frontier. Now I know what you're going to ask. What about Mark Harmon in uh, Justice League Crisis on Two Earths? I kind of had to go with a more... I guess the Superman in in, uh, New Frontier was a little bit more defined for me. So that character definitely had a role where on Crisis on Two Earths, he was pretty much a run-of-the-mill Superman and just kind of not really, he didn't really stand out. He was meant to be part of the group where Kyle MacLachlan's Superman in that Fleischer-style costume really stood out. So that's why Kyle MacLachlan is in there and not Mark Harmon. So the votes are open until Friday, and I will have the results and the new round on uh, the next episode, episode 10 on January 9th of 2011. And before we wrap up this year and go into the reviews, I have one last top five for 2010. And direct from the Graveyard of Solitude, the top five Bizarro New Year's resolutions. For some reason, I can't find the music file I need, so we'll just do this straight up. So number five, me am not downloading entire Michael Bolton catalog. Number four, me will stop illegally downloading bootleg comics from BitTorrent. Wait, does that mean he will or won't? Okay, number three. Me am teaching Bizarro Girl the Macarena. Why? Number two. Am not hiding secret identity from Bizarro Lois Lane. Does that mean he's revealing it? And number one. Me am not using Bizarro Vision to repair the Great Wall of China brick by brick. And see, now that makes sense. That explains Superman 4 altogether. I appreciate that. And uh, look for more top fives in 2011. For now, let's go ahead and take a look at the books from August of, 20 to, of uh, 2006. And we continue our look at the New Earth era of Superman. And the reviews this week are based around August of 2006 cover date. We are coming to the end of the uh, our first storyline in the New Earth time frame. And we are looking at Superman number 653, written by Jeff Johns or Kurt Busiek, 
Art by Pete Woods with Brad Anderson on colors. Mick J. Napolitano on letters. Covered by Terry and Rachel Dodson. Colored by Alex Sinclair. Edited by Matt Idelson. And with associate editor Nachi Castro. And the first three pages of this issue actually kind of explain the artifact that Luther has been pulling up uh, a little bit more fully. Um, you know, we mentioned it was infinitely reprogrammable. And here we really see the extent of that, that they could fire off uh, projectiles, missile-like projectiles that would just smash through anything. And then once hitting the ground, they could actually mutate into walkers, which are a sort of representation of the Kryptonian war suits of the burn era, or the steel era, as I call it. And uh, so we get a better explanation that it was just pretty much a wicked cool killing machine. And then we return to where we left off last issue, or in Action Comics number 839, with uh, Superman facing the Lex Luthor piloted ship. And Super Superman mentions that, you know, he really thought Luthor was down, or at least hoped so, and basically tells Luthor, no, not a step further, Metropolis is under my protection. Which Lex doesn't take too very kindly, and begins to shoot some of these said projectiles, missing Superman, and he's rushing around to try to get all of these, and he cannot. So there are some embedding themselves in the streets of Metropolis, which turn into these walker things. And they look like the chicken walkers from, uh, or more, uh, Return of the Jedi, the two-legged ones. I can never remember if it's ATAT or ATSD. I believe it's ATSD because that's the single, the dual-leg walker. If I'm wrong, hit me up on, on the, in an email. But these things are hitting the streets and really just causing more chaos. Not to mention Metropolis at the end of uh, Action Comics 839 was already torn up from all these crystal spires shooting up from the ground. And this is a great scene uh, here. Uh, Superman actually calls Lex Luthor on his BS. Because, you know, Luthor has always said, if it wasn't for Superman, it would have cured cancer. It would have been all these great things. And Superman just says, hey, I've been gone for a year. Where are these things? And Lex just continues to blame Superman. And these are some awkward fight scenes in these initial pages uh pages four through six here uh, it doesn't necessarily i mean it's mostly just these things embedding in the locations but superman is kind of kind of hard to track here and i did notice that pete woods kind of adopted more of the metallic look that was done by guedes on action comics but uh luckily you know here we see that some of the recruits have come in because Superman apparently can't handle it alone. And this is a big thing. There's can't be in more than one place. So we're seeing Firestorm, Captain Marvel, the Teen Titans, Green Arrow, Green Lantern, the Golden Age Flash. They're all coming in to kind of save the day. But Luthor has already planned for that. And we notice that he has built a giant dome over the city. And one thing I really want to note, if you're reading along uh, here on page 14, and I... I don't know if I've ever acknowledged this, but I do count the pages with the ads. So it's actual page count, not necessarily story page count. But this is the scene where we actually see the heroes plinking off of the dome like flies hitting a window. And you can actually kind of see that the, the spires are actually not spread out across all of New Troy, but they are kind of centralized uh, towards the downtown business district. And uh, Luthor basically has just built this great force field. The, the effect of this the sound effects, the sping, kating, tang, pang. Oh, they actually put tang in there. It's actually great. Creates a great image of these heroes just deflecting off of this. All we're missing here is Admiral Akbar yelling, "It's a trap!" And uh, also down on the street, as, as Superman and Luthor are facing off like this, uh, we kind of catch up a little bit with uh, Jimmy and Lois. 
where Lois is also put together, hey, it's Lex. Maybe a bit of a stretch for her to put it together, but that's, you know, that's Lois. Maybe she could. I don't, I've learned never to underestimate that character, so. And, uh, so Superman, using his newly enhanced brain, finds a juncture point in the crystalline machine and basically manages to pierce it with heat vision, which uh, kind of tears the thing apart. So all the constructs, the walkers, are falling into dust in the middle of the streets. So it's almost a day saved, but unfortunately Luthor has one other contingency plan. And he also points something out here. Uh, he uses the term, this is Drew Zod's ship, flagship of an entire Kryptonian fleet. Drew Zod being, of course, General Zod. And, you know, it's scoured, he mentions it's scoured the entire planet's clean of life, and I'll have no difficulty with you. But uh, Luthor's contingency plan goes into effect and pipes kryptonite all the way through the crystal, which, of course, renders Superman semi-powerless. He's taken down. And who should save his night? Who save save his bacon? Jimmy Olsen. I love it when Jimmy steps up to the plate, and I'm glad that this scene is here. It's a scene that's somewhat repeated in Superman Earth One, but I'm glad I can actually point out. Nope, nope. Jeff Johns did this first because Jimmy, grabbing a trash can lid, blocks the kryptonite beams that are shooting off of the crystalline ship and knocking Superman down, and comes in and saves the day, and also unfortunately gets injured with a huge burn on his arm because, you know, even though Kryptonite's deadly to Superman, focused beams are still hot. So Jimmy risks his, his self, him, his life, to save Superman. And that, my friends, is why Super, Jimmy Olsen is Superman's pal. And Superman manages to get Jimmy to an ambulance where he's being treated and flies back into battle before being slammed to the ground by the Kryptonite-infused crystal ship, which has morphed into this anime style you know mecha uh, piloted by luthor because it's infinitely pro reprogrammable probably one of the coolest aspects of this i this is the first time we're seeing new earth kryptonian technology not the last time but it is a far cry from the burn era because you know we can see these mechs and we do see the crystals and keep in mind let's put this in context real quick and this is a good spot to do this Reading this in 2006, when it's being released, we have no idea what the what the canon origin is, whether it is Birthright or uh, John Byrne's Man of Steel even has a part in it. What is Superman's backstory? So this was the first, oh well, not the first, but this is one of the major indications that we are in a new era. Because unlike Man of Steel, we didn't get the hard start from scratch reboot. We got a you know next issue just happens to be a different storyline. If you know, if you didn't know what was going on, this would be a mind blower. This would be a big huh. But so Luthor is piloting this mech suit, which he begins to pummel Superman with. And we shoot back to Lois, where somebody is telling her, "Hey, he doesn't look so good." And Lois just says, "Don't talk like that. Superman will be fine. She's always got her man's back." But uh, Superman is losing strength. He's losing speed, so he's got to do something. And he's looking at Kryptonite all through the hole and flashes back to the plunge through Krypton's red sun, which had taken his powers prior to the beginning of this story. And Superman has an idea because now he is super genius and just grows a massive pair, blasts through the ship, shooting Lex through and himself up in the air and 
pointing out that, hey, as I'm going, I am losing my powers. So at the apex of their flight, he is no longer flying. He is uh, gracefully falling, and the two begin to fall as Lex Luthor just says, I hate you, which was probably one of my favorite endings to any issue in the New Earth era. And that is Up, Up, and Away, Chapter 7, Up in the Sky. And we're going to begin immediately. I'm going to put some more notes in as soon as we finish up Action Comics, number 840. Because I don't want to leave you right here at this great cliffhanger. Um, Action Comics 840, done by the exact same crew all the way through. And we actually open up right where we left off with Superman and Lex plummeting, being observed from Outlook Park. Fortunately, Superman managed to go into Hobbs Bay and, you know, sink. And basically summarize what happened last issue, that Lex Luthor attacked Metropolis with a Kryptonian warship, a ship once commanded by Drew Zod, one of the darkest names from Krypton's spacefaring days. And where he got it, Superman doesn't know, but flooded the hole with Kryptonite, and the only way to stop him was to plow through it. And Superman did. And Superman comes to shore on a small inlet, just coughing. I mean, he's taken a pretty good beating, but he totally... It was like he, he even mentions that hitting the bay was like hitting steel. But they're kind of uh, fading from the cave exposure, and hopefully he's like, Paul, please come back. And at this moment, Lex pops up saying, You look battered, alien, weary. And he's, you know, wearing the purple with the harness, and, you know, electricity is shooting from him from the fall. And the two actually go mono and mono with a Lex using a charged up uh, set of. Uh, well, it looks like it's an electrical gauntlet, which kind of puts him not quite on Superman's par normally, but Superman's weakened. And they actually go mano a mano in a fist fight. And basically with Superman berating Lex all the way down saying, and basically Superman is saying, I was gone for a year. You didn't change. And I like that aspect because Lex really has been spouting. If not for Superman, I'd be the world savior. If not for Superman, he's had his chance. He got out of jail. He had his opportunity to really redeem himself and didn't take it. All he did was obviously correct, you know, construct, use a uh, Kryptonian construct to tear up Metropolis, which is no surprise to us because we know that's how Lex Luthor rolls. But the fistfight continues with Superman, you know, finally knocking Lex out and for passing out himself. And when Superman comes to, there's a crowd around. Uh, who tells him, you know, Luther's on his way back to Strikers. They And the EMTs try to tell Superman to rest, but he's like, no, I'm cool, and flies off. And the day is saved with the crowd chanting, Superman, Superman. And Clark comes swooping in the window in one of my favorite panels because Superman is sort of spread out. And I really like it when you get this graceful aspect of Superman because I don't think it detracts from his masculine appearance. Some people might, but I think it really, you can be graceful without being emasculine. And Superman's a good character to really pull that off. And, you know, he reunites with Lois in a much better scene than we saw replayed a couple issues ago where he reunited with her after Infinite Crisis. And Lois just simply says, I knew you'd come back. And he tells Super, he, Lois, Superman tells Lois, I'll always come back, Lois. Aww. So we kind of get the wrap up here. Because the you know basically we hit the climax, we've seen the villain defeated, but there's still a few loose ends to take care of. 
The remains of Druzot's ship are taken out of Weisinger Square, obviously named after Mort Weisinger, a longtime Silver Age editor of the Superman books. And back at the Daily Planet, Ma Kent has sent Clark a really nice package to kind of deal with his problem with electrical, electronic objects. It is a manual typewriter, which uh, I just always thought Clark would be more appropriate with the typewriter than a computer. Something about that image just works for me, and I don't know how to describe it other than that. But uh, as Clark is enjoying his new gift, uh, Perry shows up yelling about at Clark about running out on him yesterday when we, he was needed. And Clark says, as long as I stuck home in bed, I did some phone work and got, you know, perspectives on the attack, a statement from LexCorp, Pentagon officials about the ship, which kind of blows, uh, you know, over for Perry a little. Uh, Clark still kind of says, you know, look, look at Lois. She's dependable, but that, you know, she's great. And Lois sticks up for her man. Telling uh, Perry, hey, Clark was sick. Deal with it. He still managed to deliver interviews. And you're yelling at him? Completely shutting Perry down. Perry just kind of stoops his shoulders, drops his papers, and walks off. And two uh, fellow reporters actually mentioned about Clark being Mr. Kent, which is great. It's always an interesting dynamic in that marriage that Lois comes off as more of the dominant figure to everybody else. Because of Clark's disguise. Kind of a, a a portion of that lie that I was talking about last last week. And, um, you know, everything gets back to normal. Uh, you know, Jimmy is healing. And, you know, I need Superman. Jimmy mentions, I need Superman to find, you know, I need to find Superman. But it's not that easy to pin down. And Clark says, I think I can help with that. So Superman helps with some of the repairs in Hobbs Bay from the disaster to kind of uh, stave off some of the worst parts of the, uh, dis you know, damages. And happens to meet up with Jimmy, who shows up at a, one of these. And Superman takes Jimmy on a flight, which is f great because Jimmy has been so, you know, in the corner, you know, feeling sorry for himself. And kind of rightfully so, because Clark's been blowing him off for a year. And Superman's been missing. And Jimmy manages to say, hey, I found something. And it is the Sunstone Crystal, which is, you know, the, 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 you can always count on Jimmy to come through. Uh, Jimmy Olsen's one of my favorite side characters. And I love it when he's written with a, a modicum of respect. He's not the plucky comic relief. He comes through when he needs to. And Superman also returns Jimmy's signal watch since, you know, he really doesn't need it anymore. And there's a ton of noise coming from the Avenue of Tomorrow and Superman flies back into action, fighting the crypto nucleus and facing the threat of Dr. Virus and the Cryptococcus, the Omnigerm, which is a very quick kind of throwaway fight, showing that Superman is back in action full time. Uh, kind of a nice way to wrap this up, but it's not quite over yet. There's still one more thing. And we kind of see Superman's life getting back to normal, uh, assuring a woman that it's uh, not appropriate to sign her body parts and taking some drawings from little kids. It's actually very sweet. And as Superman's about to take off, somebody yells, don't go yet. And it's Majalb. If you remember him, he is the pretzel vendor. And then we cut to the Arctic. Don't worry, Majalb will come back. I'll, the point it will be shown in just a moment where Superman takes the sunstone, examines it, 
you know, really looks at thoroughly and then throws it into the Arctic tundra, where, of course, it grows into the crystalline structure we know as the Fortress of Solitude from the Superman movies. And he may, he does point out a little bit of continuity that his Fortress of Solitude in the Amazon is damaged, and too many people know where it is. Well, duh, when you build it in a giant Aztec-type structure, people are going to notice. Of course, what can I say about a crystalline structure in the middle of the Arctic? It might uh, ring a few bells, but it's not quite as obvious as a big yellow door. But as he's looking at his new structure, Superman pulls out the pretzel covered with mustard that Majab gave him as a thanks. And he talks about, he says, you know, my powers are back, my senses, touch, smell, taste. They've all changed, more precise, but distance, different. But some things, some things you'd never lose. And with that, you know, he meant, he also ends the issue saying, I go in to see what lies ahead. So with that, you know, that is Up, Up, and Away finale, The Adventures of Superman. And we have officially come to the end of the first storyline in the New Earth era. So let me uh, interject some thoughts here. Um, as far as covers, I haven't really talked much about them. They've been good. Uh, normal, you know, lower level Terry Dotson art. But I got to point out Action Comics 840 as the really one standout in this. And it's an image of Superman flying in space with his cape draped to the left. And it is great. I mean, that was just the perfect note to end on. Having, you know, brought Superman back, you know, in full form after his powers have been gone through the bulk of the storyline. But I think if I have only one standing complaint across the board on the, the Up, Up, and Away storyline, and if you've noticed, you know, my stance on it has gotten a little bit looser as we've gone further in. I think it could have been better as a four-part series and uh, kind of remove some of the some of the fluff really uh superman or clark and lois doing you know the retrospective it really could have been condensed a little bit i don't know that it would have lost anything that way but i don't know that it would have gained anything but that's my opinion and uh, i'm gonna stick to it so overall the art pete woods um really not a standout artist to me i think he really does work on the action comics run with paul cornell and Lo the lois lane storyline but his Superman is a little awkward. Not quite as... And Guedes, you know, I mentioned his facial structures kept changing. Pete Woods was pretty consistent, but some of his line work was a little awkward. And when I, you know, having gone through the series again, I really think it kind of worked for this. It's not necessarily my preference, but it did kind of work. And as far as entering the new era, I've said, you know, a few times over and over again, you know, we're entering this era. We don't know what the backstory is. We don't know what is continuity and what isn't. And unfortunately, you know, we're here at the end of Up, Up, and Away, and there's only a few things that we realize that Superman's fortress in the Amazon still exists. So apparently some of the more recent developments happen, but we don't know what's been omitted. Is Lex Luthor Jr. still a part of it? Is, uh, was the For Tomorrow storyline canon? I don't know that it ever was. And, uh, we just, there's too many questions that were left unanswered and, you know, we'll get some of these and I know it was intentional on Jeff John's part to kind of give that palette of, you can write whatever story you want, just cherry pick from all these continuity. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I mentioned a little bit ago about, uh, the Jeff John's era. He definitely laid the foundation, but I don't know where that we're going to know, you know, how we can name it until we get to the end of the era which is quite a ways away. But it really did, 
I don't. I won't say it kicked it off right. It kicked it off well, well enough, and it was consistent all the way through this. But I did think, you know, it did flash back and forth a little too much. There were some flashbacks in awkward spots. It wasn't Jeff John's A game, which we're going to see um, a little bit further down the line with, you know, say the Brainiac storyline, where he really does manage to bring a lot of continuities together. He just didn't do it here, and that was his, you know, personal choice. I still think the story worked, so, you know, I'm going to give these two issues, uh, both of them, I'm going to give them four out of fives. The art really did uh, serve the story, and the story, you know, really did serve to reignite Superman. It just left a little too much to be imagined by the reader, and not necessarily to positive, you know, I'd like to continue this journey to see where this goes kind of way, more in a head scratching, I'm trying to figure out what is going on here type of way. And I'm going to give the storyline overall four out of five, because it was, you know, a kickoff to an era. It did have that great level of excitement. And with the books coming out within two weeks, you know, I remember the pacing may have been a little bit better than, you know, what I am imagining now, looking, thinking about it as a perspective of monthly books. But uh, four out of five for Up, Up, and Away. And next week, we're going to look at the beginning of Camelot Falls by Kurt Busiek over in Superman and back in action in Action Comics. And I'm not going to, I'm going to warn you one last time, there are going to be some really tough spots because there was a lot of scheduling problems and a lot of questions. But we're going to go through it one by one and, you know, together we will answer these tough questions. For now, let's take a look, a real quick look at Superman Batman number 27, which was written by Mark by Hyden with Kevin McGuire on art and Dave McCraig on colors. And Ethan Van Skyver and Moose Bowman supply the cover with Comic Craft on the letters and was edited by Janine Schaefer and Eddie Braganza. And the issue opens with Huntress at the Metropolis Zoo just getting to her feet after being punched through a wall, which she points out. And Power Girl also rises, supplying us with a flashback to Batman going toe-to-toe with the ultra-humanite, noting that retirement hadn't really changed him. Earmark that. I'm going to explain it in a moment. Uh, Both Power Girl and Huntress note that even though the ultra-humanite is now gone, he wouldn't have left them without finishing the job. And the Huntress points out that they knew they were in trouble when Superman couldn't land a punch. And we see Supes getting blasted in the chest with a beam from the humanite. There was a huge flash and everything went back, went black, I'm sorry, which brings us to the present. And Power Girl and Huntress find each other and the dead body of the Ultra Humanite. But there seems to be some confusion as we find out this is actually Superman and Power Girl's body and Batman and the Huntress's body. And the two had originally showed up to find Power Girl and the Huntress. Huh? Stay with me. This is going to be, I'm going to get you through this. Uh, zookeepers, meanwhile, find that the gorilla population is accounted for, except one which turns out to be the ultra-humanite's new host body. Uh, the humanite reveals this plan was all Brainwave's idea, and the others would see them suffer. The others would see them suffer. The ultra-humanite just wants them straight dead. And a brief standoff results in Superman slash Power Girl being attacked by gorillas, while Batman slash the Huntress rescues the zookeepers. And Superman and Batman do escape the zoo, and Superman asks Batman about retiring after his wife Selina's death. Here's where I'm going to explain this. We are, just now, that is the confirmation that, yes, we're on Earth 2. It is not revealed in the narrative. Uh, There's no uh, little asterisks and caption explaining this to us. We are just left to assume, based on the evidence here, which 
is fine uh, for those of us, you know, who read the books, who understand the multiverse, that this was the, you know, Earth 2 was the area where the Golden Age heroes were allowed to age normally. But not necessarily for somebody picking this up on the stands who could find a, quite a bit of confusion in this issue. So for those of us that know, we're on Earth 2, Golden Age would have uh, progressed into, you know, normal continuity. And Brainwave uh, is where we're going next. The misplaced heroes go to visit Brainwave, who explains that Power Girl and the Huntress still reside in their bodies. And in a few hours, their minds will retake control, killing Superman and Batman. And Brainwave makes a point to mention that the joke was on them. If you're putting this together, don't spoil it for the rest. Brainwave dies as Batman and the Huntress consciousness begin to argue in a mirror and Batman learns that the Huntress is his own daughter with Selina, Kyle, Helena. Which in the normal continuity, she is not his daughter. This would be the Golden Age continuity where uh, the Huntress would have originated being the daughter of Batman and Catwoman. Which is a little bit like Birds of Prey without the, uh, without the suck. Anyway, I'm just going to put it out there. Huntress fights to keep herself from asserting control while Superman and Batman investigate the Gotham City fairgrounds. Have they connected the humanites mention of others and Brainwave's joke comment? And the two heroes run smack into a ticked off ultra humanite who just doesn't adhere to the same level of fairness and rules as the Joker and Brainwave. And Solomon Grundy hates rules too and he begins to trounce Power Girl who is starting to retake her body as Superman's consciousness begins to slip away. And Superman tries to explain to Power Girl that they will try to convince her that it was her fault, that he's, he, his death was her fault, but she must not feel that way, and he is very proud of her. All together now? Aww. And in the middle of this chick flick moment, Solomon Grundy bursts in and does what Grundy does, savage beatdown. And right into the room, I mean, blasts uh, Power Girl slash Superman right in the room, where Superman and Batman's bodies are. So Superman and Batman are able to regain their bodies and save the day just in time. Uh, villains defeated. And Batman just doesn't seem to remember finding out that his daughter Helena is the Huntress. And Kara suddenly wakes up inside of the Bottle City of Kandor as Nightwing. And this issue is a ton of WTF. As far as the Bottle City of Kandor as Nightwing, Supergirl would have been uh, Flamebird. And that is a storyline that is happening uh, kind of concurrently with, you know, this issue over in Supergirl. And definitely ends up being a plug for that particular story. Um, it's not to say this isn't a fun standalone story, but you kind of do need to set up for, you know, maybe even casual readers that, yes, this is Earth 2. This is an alternate reality. And you don't get that. Now, going into it, knowing this being aware of the Earth 2 and being aware of the multiverse, I enjoyed this. It was a good one-off. The art was pretty good. Uh, eh, I've seen better, but I've definitely seen way worse. Now, I'm not a big fan. I'm just going to put it out there. I don't like Ethan Van Skyver on Batman or Superman. I love his Green Lantern. I love some of the other work he's done. I just don't like what the scallops he does with Superman or with Batman's cape. And I think his Superman has cheekbones that could probably cut cheese. But his Power Girl and Huntress, they look pretty good on the cover. I'm not going to complain about the cover. And Kevin Maguire, he definitely does, you know, a good B-level art. I mean, this was definitely a fill-in issue. But I have learned, with especially with Superman Batman, that you can't discount the fill-in issues. 
because sometimes that's when the good stuff comes out on this book, especially, you know, after issue 25, obviously issue 26 was, you know, above and beyond, but it is going to be hit and miss with this book incredibly. There are going to be some really lame storylines. There are going to be some excellent one-off issues. This book is a constant surprise, but as for this issue, because of the confusion, um, not pointing out specifically that it's earth two, and because of the ending uh, kind of correlating into the Supergirl storyline being a built-in plug, I'm actually going to give the story three out of five. But the art is very passable. The layouts are really good. So I'm going to give the art itself four out of five. So overall, uh, the issue would get a 3.5 out of five, which isn't bad. It's pretty, uh, pretty much middle of the road. And uh, that's going to wrap us up this week. Uh, if you don't mind, please stop by iTunes and leave a review. Uh, if you have any thoughts on any of the books I'm covering or any of the topics or any suggestions for topics, um, you can always e- email me at mail at supermanforever.com or leave me a voicemail at the call-in line, which is 703-95-SUPER or 703-957-8737. You can always follow me at Twitter. I am at Superman, the number four ever dot com, Superman forever. And I am on Tumblr at supermanforever.tumblr.com. And uh, you can always see the show notes at supermanforever.com. And I will get back to posting regular episodes or regular blog posts after the new year. And keep in mind, I will not be doing an episode next week, January 2nd. I will be back on January 9th for our first episode in 2011. And as we wrap up this week, I really, uh, I don't want to get mushy, but I think there's some some thanks that need to go out. I, I can't explain how happy I am to be able to do this podcast. And it really, as I mentioned last week, uh, talking about driving Metropolis with From Crisis to Crisis playing on the pod, on the my iPod. It really is like spending time with friends and I'm incredibly pleased to be meeting a lot of new people and getting a lot of feedback and I just can't tell you how happy I am and I first and foremost you know at the end of 2010 I want to thank my wife Holly she has been fantastic supporting me in doing you know supermanforever.com doing the podcast she's been behind me all the way she really she really is my own personal Lois Lane so I just want to put that out there don't expect me to get mushy like that again and I do want to thank my compatriots uh, over at the uh, Superman uh, podcast network over at fortress of com slash superman podcast network i want to personally thank michael bailey jeffrey taylor charlie niemeyer billy hogan and uh, michael bradley and cayman stole and um, in other superman areas i want to thank steve Eunice for having the superman homepage and uh, especially neil cole for having superman super site which i found back in 2000 and at that point said i want to one day do a superman fan site and I got to meet Mr. Cole at the Superman uh, celebration in Metropolis. And he was ever he was one of the nicest people I ever met. He and his wife, Jennifer, are great. So if you ever get a chance, uh, visit uh, supermansupersite.com and, of course, supermanhomepage.com. And I just want to thank um, all of my listeners. I'm just, I can't explain how great it is that you know we get to spend this time together. And I thank you for inviting me into your, your earbuds or your, your speakers and just uh, listening to me rattle on about Superman. And so, uh, you know, also a big thanks to Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And, uh, you know, I do want to thank, you know, the the free readers over at Tumblr because, you know, I started SupermanForever.com on January 2nd of 2010, and uh, I've had a ton of support over there on Tumblr. And I did move over to Blogger later in the year to kind of support the podcast. 
But, you know, I went through a period there where I was out of work for about seven weeks and the job searching for a job was not the same as when I, you know, exited, you know, got into reliable work. It was entirely different because, you know, I hadn't been unemployed for uh, almost nine years and technology has changed where, you know, really you don't go out and look for jobs like you used to. You sit around the house and it's all on the computer. So thank you, Tumblr, for keeping me, you know, from going stir crazy, for giving me a, a receptacle for all the Superman thoughts that are in my head. And uh, I'm not going to, you know, drag this out. I just want to say thank you all. I hope 2011 is the year we all, you know, kind of uh, reach the goals we are aspiring to. So I will see you on January 9th, 2011. I hope you all have a, a very safe new year. Please watch out for the other guy. He may not be watching out for you. I know it sounds like a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. And so I will see you on January 9th when the never-ending battle continues. Superman is copyright and trademark DC Comics and Warner Brothers. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster.